On this episode, associations, similar breeds of dork, and exploratory technical alpinism. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure podcast. We are excited to have Chris Wright with us tonight. He is an IFMGA, right, guide? Yep, got all the initials in there. You can go ahead and explain what that is. Uh, he's also a PLA or winner, alpinist, all-around cool cat, gotta say, cock- expert, cocktail maker, uh, what else? <laughs> I'll let you take it from there, Chris. <laughs> Tell us more about yourself. I'm really just an apprentice cocktail maker. As we all know, your husband is the master. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I have had a lot of time to practice in the last, I was going to say six months, but it's like, we're way deeper in that now. Yep, yep. Uh, but uh, anyway, yeah, I, um, I am a mountain guide most of the time. And like you said, IFMGA, which is the International Federation of Mountain Guides Associations. Um, And uh, that just means that I've been trained in the US to the international standard. And uh, shoot, what else were we talking about? Um, We'll get to to the award, but let's pause a little bit on the IFMGA because in order to get that, you have to train in a whole bunch of different disciplines, correct? It's not like a singular discipline to get it. I mean, there's, you have to sort of cover a lot of bases. Can you talk a little bit more about that for our listeners? Yeah. And even maybe backing up from that, what is (laughs) IFMGA? Yeah. So, um, so mountain guiding is something that's been uh, a part of the kind of mountain culture of the Alpine countries for a long time because people have been climbing in the mountains in Switzerland and Italy and France for um, forever now. And it was a long tradition for people to hire um, locals from these regions to take them up the mountains because, you know, we think of Zermatt as an international climbing destination, but you don't have to go back that far for it to be one tiny village up the far end of a deep remote valley in again Switzerland we now think of as like some super advanced place and it used to be kind of like a bunch of people and a bunch of sheep and a bunch of fields with a lot of mountains around and so um, anyway the local experts would take people up the mountains and I might add that uh, in the early I think it was 1897, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was one of the first uh, guided clients to ever climb the Matterhorn uh, with a local Swiss guide. So the tradition of guiding in the Alps goes back a long time. And of course, it started with locals, then eventually there were some training programs and eventually uh, those training programs standardized so that if you trained in Switzerland, your qualification was just as good in Italy and it was just as good in France. And eventually all of the little guides associations um, formed a bigger union of guides associations to say that, uh, again, like the Chamonix guides were training differently perhaps for their own mountains, but their training was just as good as the Zermatt guides. And eventually that umbrella organization came to be the IFMGA or the International Federation of Mountain Guides Associations. 
And most countries that have mountains and mountain guiding um, are member countries of that organization. And so we all have, still have our own organizations. In the States, it's the American Mountain Guides Association. In Canada, it's the, um, the ACMG, the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides. And all of our training programs are a little bit different. For example, um, in France, they do a lot of canyoneering as part of their uh, program. We don't have that. For us, we have rock climbing, alpine climbing, and skiing. And ours is actually a little bit different than other places because we have plenty of rock climbers in the States who have never touched a glacier, so they won't become full mountain guides. They're just rock guides, whereas that doesn't exist in some other places. Um, but in any case, in the States, you have to go through these, this sort of three-tiered training program to be tested in rock climbing, alpine climbing, which also includes ice climbing, and skiing, which also includes kind of uh, glacier and avalanche management. And once you've completed each of those tracks, you become a full mountain guide uh, or an IFMGA mountain guide. So that's sort of the, the short version of that. So clearly you started this process when you were like 10? <laughs> I didn't start uh, climbing until I was 18 in college. Um, and that's a whole nother story too. But uh, I moved out to Oregon accidentally after college and uh, started working at the local gear shop and met the owner of the local guide service. And, um, you know, just a few years prior, I had no idea what a guide was, but I started working for him um, because I sold him a backpack, asked what he did and started taking people to Smith and working on uh, Mount Hood with him and luckily he is a full guide and um, was an amazing mentor to kind of you know push me down the right track but uh, no I had I had no clue. How do you accidentally move to Oregon were you like trying to get to California <laughs> and you accidentally turned right instead of left? Uh, no so I went to school in New York and I finished uh, college and was going on a climbing road trip with a, a friend who I'd climbed with a bit but didn't know super well and we were supposed to kind of, you know, meander across the country and end with uh, visiting. Uh, we were supposed to end in Eugene, Oregon, because one of my best friends growing up went to school uh, at U of O and I had come out and visited and thought Oregon was great. His girlfriend's uh, was from Eugene and his mom lived or her mom lived there. So it was like, we're going to end up in Eugene. I'm going to hang out with my buddy you're going to hang out with your girlfriend who's going to fly out to meet you. And he didn't want to climb anymore after like a week or two of our road trip. So we ended up just hightailing it to Oregon. He flew back East. I borrowed his uh, like 87 Corolla and um, just kind of thought, okay, I'll stay in Oregon for a couple weeks. Then I'll stay for the summer then I just kind of stayed and that was 15 years ago now. Nice. And where did you go to school in New York and were you climbing back there, back East? I, I was, but not until I started in school. So I went to, uh, to NYU and I studied uh, film. So I was, you know, ready to go with you on the ragging on Timothy, Timothy Dalton Bond <laughs> movie track. Uh, but um, I just went climbing once in the gunks with a buddy from, Long Island who asked if I wanted to go rock climbing one day and um, I I was hooked. Uh, I remember he had borrowed a bunch of one inch webbing and ovals from a friend and tied them around the tree and we would just, you know, 
uh, top rope and uh, walk all the way back around and then move our top rope to another tree and walk back down because we didn't know how to repel. But I was I was hooked. Nice. Interesting. Do you still, I went I'm a film school grad as well. I didn't know. Do you still work, do films on your own? Do you still work in film at all? Not really. I, I still like to shoot. Uh, and if a friend needs, you know, a hand, I enjoy it. I love shooting stuff on our expeditions, but um, no, not really. It's funny because being around it a bit now, because one of my main climbing partners owns a film production company it's like all the principal things are the same, but actually um, Paul and I have laughed about this, that, you know, loading a camera seemed like a really important job and a really important skill back then. And now it's like <laughs> film. <There's> no- <laughs> yeah. I sort of, gr- I was one of the last, I'm old. So I was like, I caught the end of film school before it turned into digital school. So I was one of the last, uh, I think kids, I think they probably still taught some of those, some of those things, you know, like editing on a flatbed and whatever, you know, <laughs> after that, but I, I, I got the full film school experience. None of the digital stuff was even out there really until, until after I was out. <laughs> but, yeah. We were like, we had mini DV, but we definitely like, if you wanted to shoot anything decent, you were still shooting on film. And I mean, we learned the flatbeds cause they wanted to make a point that this is a Steenbeck and you should know what to do with it. But I think it was more of a, we had to go through it. So now you should have to go through a kind of a scenario. <laughs> but, um, but no, I see, I feel like, you know, when I move on from mountain guiding, I'm going to want something with less hustle and more like steady returns maybe. And the film industry is not that. No, no. Both me and Severia, whose husband is in it, are shaking our heads as, as yeah, no, it is definitely not that. <laughs> yeah. And for our listeners, Paul is my husband. And so that's actually how I first met Chris was through my husband and how he met you is a, like, and so I don't know if you've ever heard the story from my perspective, but we were in France. I had just done the Tour de Mont Blanc. Paul had come out to do some climbing with another guide friend of our guide friend of ours from the states, and the guy got sick for a day and was like, "Hey, I'm sick, but my other buddy Chris is here guiding. Would it be okay if you like went out with him for a day?" And Paul came back and was like, "Oh my god, this guy was so cool. He knew you from the Chilo Gear videos." So there was that, and then he was like, "We talked about film all day and music and climbed. It was like his dream day of climbing, and um, and he's been climbing with you ever since." As one of your clients. It turns out we're like, we're a very similar breed of dork about a lot of things. (laughs) Film, climbing, music, it was a perfect storm. Yes, (laughs) and cocktails. Very cool. So you'd mentioned earlier expeditions, Chris. Um, So talk a little bit about sort of your experiences climbing abroad. And I would love to get to like the bit, you had a very big year um, this year. So um, anyways, I'd like to get there, but talk a little bit more about your experience and guiding and yeah, internationally and beyond, beyond here in the States even. Well, I think that's a lot, but I think that um, for me, when I started climbing, I think I kind of came into it late enough that I was a clean slate, I guess. And and when I started rock climbing, I I was, um, you know, immediately enamored of it and was, was fully in, but growing up, uh, as a climber out east, you kind of follow a progression of, okay, well, it's winter now, so what do we do? Um, Okay, well, let's go ice climbing, that was cool. And then when I moved out west, we had so many bigger mountains that putting all of that together to go rock climbing and ice climbing and mixed climbing in the mountains seemed like the 
sort of natural thing to do. And, uh, you know, moving from Manhattan to uh, Bend, you immediately look up at the mountains and think like, oh, I want to go up all of those. And um, so I just started alpine climbing. And at the same time, I was big wall climbing. And I think I always wanted to do um, kind of big things in the mountains because I just sort of thought that was the logical end of what you did. And of course learned that that wasn't it for everybody that, um, you know, people went off in their different directions and that mine was alpine climbing. And uh, so I was able to, I guess kind of hone the skill set, I think, as a, a guide in the Northwest working all over the Cascades and eventually in the Tetons and stuff. And you just spend a lot of time in the mountains on days that you might otherwise not want to be out there um, and learn a lot from it. And I think that also sort of puts you in this world of these, um, I don't know, kind of larger than life characters a lot of the time who were the hard men of old who had you know done all kinds of crazy stuff and told you all kinds of stories as you were you know hiking up a trail or sitting in a tent or whatever and I just wanted to go do all that stuff so eventually um, I started going to Alaska both to work as a guide up in the Alaska range and like so many I think at least Western American climbers kind of cut my teeth on bigger mountains in Alaska. And, you know, the same conversations point you towards the, uh, the Himalaya and eventually to the Karakoram. And so I started kind of going on expeditions to first Nepal and then India and Pakistan. And, um, you know, it's like a snowball that just, once it gets going, that's just sort of the, direction you're pointing in and I think you either like end up hating it and quitting um or you become kind of a life I don't want to say I'm a lifer but that just becomes something that builds on itself that you want to keep doing obviously there's all different sorts of climbing kind of involved in what you just mentioned do you have a favorite discipline would it be like traditional mountaineering or you said big wall and what's your favorite to do well that I think that for me, exploratory technical alpinism is, is, it's my favorite. I mean, I really like rock climbing, but I've never been an amazing rock climber and I really like ice climbing. Um, but the harder it gets, just gets scarier. Big walling um, was a great thing to do for a while, but similarly, it just gets scarier the harder it gets. And um, I think that the feeling of alpine climbing in terrain where nobody's ever been before and climbing through technical challenges, but also the logistical challenges of getting to these places, getting into position to be successful from, you know, all the human side of it, the weather side of it, the planning, the research that even put you there in the first place. And then all of it kind of culminating in hopefully you being up high someplace no one's ever been in the sunshine. I think, you know, if I think back to the teenage me, I would have had no idea what you were talking about if you explained what I do now. But if you had told me, oh, you're going to be motivated by travel and adventure and sharing uh, those adventures with people you care about, I would have been in then. I just wouldn't have known it was going to look like alpine climbing. Love that. 
Um, so your most recent big adventure and expedition uh, resulted in a, the, a first descent of Linksar, correct? Yep. And you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about Linksar and the expedition and what just recently happened afterwards? <laughs> so, um, again, there's a lot there, but uh, in 20... Uh, 15, I think it was, um, I was, uh, I was at work in Norway where I work as a ski guide and a buddy of mine who I didn't know super well at the time, uh, named Graham Zimmerman, um, sent me an email and said, Hey, I think I'm moving to bend. Uh, do you know anybody who, um, might have like a, a room to rent? And I said, I do, you should move in with me. We'd climbed together a little bit before. We had a lot of mutual friends. Um, so he did. And over the course of our living together for a handful of years, we became you know, pretty close friends and climbed together a lot. And it was, I think, obvious to both of us that our um, kind of passions in the mountains and our style and uh, kind of just generally like we aligned really well and we both had plans that year uh, and the next, but he invited me to come on an expedition in 2017 uh, with him and Steve Swenson, who if folks don't know Steve, he is um, probably one of, if not the most accomplished climber of his generation. He's 65, um, he was making hard first ascents in the Canadian Rockies when I was in grade school. He's climbed Everest and K2 solo and without oxygen, and those aren't the things he's proud of. Um, the guy's, you know, been Mr. Karakoram, the range in Pakistan for um, probably 30 years. And this was a mountain uh, that he had wanted to climb since he became aware of it and went to check it out in 2001. Um, and there's so many direct, so many components to this that make it a cool story that we were able to actually go do it. But um, basically, this is a mountain that is one of the, um, well, was one of the last unclimbed 7,000 meter peaks in the world that aren't a sub peak of something else that are, you know, a really gorgeous standalone mountain. Um, and it hadn't been climbed. Uh, partially because uh, it's difficult and attempts had failed at it, and partially because it's located in an area that's uh, really close to the disputed border between Pakistan and India, and access to that area had been closed for a long time. And so just for a little historical backstory, you know, um, Pakistan and India were one country until uh, 1946, when the British pulled out of the uh, protectorate, um, they had to hand control over to Indians who wanted to separate into a Muslim majority country and a Hindu majority country. Well, where'd they draw the line? Um, eventually, they just drew it up to the mountains and sort of left it there. Um, and where that line ended up in these mountainous regions is has been the subject of dispute since that day. And so this whole area of um, the greater Himalaya or the Karakoram has you know, piles and lifetimes of unclimbed mountains. Um, 
but it also has high altitude camps on each side of the disputed border. And as a result, um, so many of these gorgeous peaks have just been completely closed to climbers. So um, they were open for a period in the um, 60s and early 70s and then shut down and largely have stayed shut down since then with certain bits opening at certain times. Um, but in 2001, for some reason, uh, the reason being actually because the commander in the area liked climbing and thought it was cool, um, he opened this particular area. Steve went in with an expedition um, to try to climb Linksar, um, which I think was the first since a Japanese one in 81, uh, and Steve went in in 2001. They weren't able to climb it. They didn't even get very far. They basically put all their eggs in the wrong basket of trying to go up a certain route and then found it wasn't going to work and then they were out of time and resources. And um, he'd been trying to go back since, but it had been closed. In 2015, uh, he and Graham went to climb a peak in the adjacent valley uh, called Changi Tower. And uh, they got a great look at Linksar. And that combined with what Steve had seen before left Steve really certain of how you were gonna get up this thing, which was the east base. Um, and since they'd been allowed into the neighboring valley, he sort of used his resources in Pakistan to see if we would be let into the Condus Valley, which is where we went to climb Linksar. And we got positive reports that we might be. So we put together, or rather I should say, Graham and Steve started putting together the expedition in 2017 invited me, we got lucky, we did get the permit to go in there. Um, so that was the first time climbers had been allowed into that valley in 16 years. And um, we made a good attempt, uh, got up to about 6,000 meters, uh, got shut down by weather, and after two months felt like we had solved a lot of the problems of figuring out how to climb the mountain. We just need to go back and do it. Uh, we took 2018 off, went back in 2019 with uh, the same team plus Steve's longtime climbing partner, Mark Ritchie, who is um, also, I believe, Mark 60 and uh, another Karakoram veteran has done, you know, has a huge resume of impressive things uh, he's climbed. And the four of us were able to make the first ascent via the east southeast base in 2019 and got lucky enough to be awarded the PLA door for it uh, last year, which again, folks don't know, it's, um, it's sort of like, it's the highest award you can get for alpine climbing. That said, it's, you know, a small enough award that you still have to explain to people what it is because it's a really small uh, pool of folks who care about that sort of thing. It's a big deal, listeners, it's a big deal. Well, would you say it's more like an Oscar or a People's Choice Award for climbing? Sorry, Oscar. That, was a, that was a Hollywood joke. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, except it's got an element of, which I really enjoy, I think, of elitism to it. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure if it's an Oscar or if it's like a Palme d'Or or something. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, the whole French thing, too. You got the whole French thing going there. That, that, yeah, with Palme d'Or. That's the main prize for the Cannes Film Festival for the non film nerds and the uh, listening to this. Um, that sounds amazing. Like, 
that's obviously quite remote, quite a difficult place to get to. Like, how, how do you, how, how did you guys even say get to the bottom of the mountain? Because a lot of times that's a pretty big ordeal as well, right? Well, it was and it wasn't. Um, so normally these expeditions involve uh, a prolonged trek into the mountains with a legion of porters, and this one didn't. Um, in that uh, we were able to drive up a road, and road is being really generous, uh, <laughs> impassable tract of dirt and rocks and often flowing mud and boulders, et cetera, that you can get an old Jeep up because we use the access road that the military still uses to supply um, their high mountain positions. And we were at basically camped about a kilometer away from the dump camp where um, they could drive to and from there supplies go into the mountains on people and pack animals. Um, but that said, uh, we were still way, way away from the mountain. And that was one of the things that we learned in 2017 was, yes, it's sweet that you can put a base camp here, but we're on the wrong side of the glacier and we're believe our base camp was 12,000 vertical feet below the summit of the mountain. So um, not exactly, that's like, that's like basically going to the top of Mount Rainier from like Seattle, you know? Uh, so um, part of the exploration was figuring out how to get across the glacier, how to get up there, how to get from there to um, the actual climbing route. And it was a lot of, exploration, turning around, and eventually, funny enough, for one part of it, uh, the solution was following Ibex tracks uh, over a little pass and down onto a glacier, and they knew the sneaky way. The goats. Just follow the use trail. <laughs> totally, totally. How many, how many weeks of, of uh, time, you know, how much time does this take? We spent about eight weeks uh, on each of these expeditions. So that's fly to Islamabad, um, spend a couple days there doing logistics and waiting for a flight into the mountains to Skardu. Um, and that flight gets delayed a lot because of weather. Um, Skardu is a small city uh, that's kind of the main city of Baltistan, which is sort of what people think of as like Pakistani occupied Kashmir because Kashmir is kind of a larger region that's uh, disputed. Um, and from there, you drive uh, two days into the mountains and then uh, start walking. Uh, so I think on the first expedition, from when we flew till we kind of knew how to get to the route, it was like a month of time, something like that. And on this expedition, we had all those questions answered, but it was still, uh, yeah, I think, I think we took eight weeks total and uh, Graham and Steve stayed a little longer and took 10 weeks total to um, clean up the mess because Mark and I had to get back for things. Now, I, I know up until somewhere, they, they still have skirmishes up there, right? They still will like shell each other. And I mean, that's still happening. Did you hear any of that? I mean, going on? No, it's been pretty quiet for the most part in recent years. Um, and the area that we are in um, has had a de facto ceasefire for probably the last, I want to say 20 years. There was something called the Cargill Offensive, which I believe was 97, maybe. Not much of anything has happened since then. 
Um, it's still, I mean, there's active military bases. We have to go through, you know, a dozen checkpoints. Um, the army guys who are camped up the road from us were very happy to come down and get to have a cup of tea and chat and like have a break from their monotony. But it's, it's still very active, but no, there's like nothing like that happening. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that because I know it was kind of ugly up there. You know, <laughs> I guess recent history, I, I'm remembering it. I remember what you're talking about. For some reason, that was much more recent in my in my memory. <laughs> um, but that said, you do. I mean, it sounds like with what you do, you do have to go through some pretty dangerous places to get to some of these mountains. Do you not? I mean, have you had scares? Have you had like kidnapping scares? Have you had been robbed? Things like that? No. And I'm happy to say that because um, I think that uh, people have a very uh, negative impression in the States of the, of Pakistan in general. And I'll, I'll just say that, you know, Pakistan is a country with a lot of problems. Um, and certainly there are parts of the country, you know, you do not want to visit as an American or as a foreigner. Um, the security situation is real, but most of that is largely on the Western border with Afghanistan. And, you know, it's an entirely different conversation whose fault that is. But um, I will say that uh, where we're climbing is a world away from that stuff in a lot of ways that um, the Balti people, it, as soon as you get out of the cities are, you know, they're living in a traditional way that they've lived in for a long time. And, um, the idea of radical Islam there. I mean, they've, they like to tell you it would be as crazy to them if a, you know, band full of radical Islamists rolled into Skardu as it would for us if they rolled into Bend. Um, on top of that, they're an ethnic and religious minority who are as afraid of Sunni extremists as, uh, as we are. But I mean, I think that, you know, frankly, if you were to see America from the outside at least at our current moment, you would think, man, those guys are a bunch of assholes. And uh, I think it's probably fair to see it the same way in Pakistan, but um, it's so not an accurate, accurate picture of either of our countries and everybody that we deal with there is absolutely lovely. So no, luckily I haven't. Yeah. And for the record, I didn't mean to single out Pakistan. That wasn't, I, I meant just in general. I mean, there's, you know, you're all over the world, right? And, you know, well, yeah, like, I mean, this is a really basic sort of question, but, you know, when, when I go uh, backpacking, you know, we got to leave our car at the trailhead and we're going to be gone for, you know, a week or more at a time. And you wonder, you're like, I hope my car is okay when I get back and that nobody, you know, broke in and stole, you know, anything out of it or, you know, or, or, or you know, to cause any harm. Like when you do a trip like this and you're up there, you're gone for weeks and, you know, you take some Jeep on some dirt road two days into the mountains and, like it just kind of boggles the mind. You think about like what? What do you like? Where do you park the jeep, and how do you know it's gonna be there when you come out? <laughs> yeah, no, and I, they're super valid questions. And I think I'm just particularly sensitive um, in feeling like I have had the warmest welcome you could possibly imagine spending time in Pakistan, and for that matter, India, Nepal, and other places I've climbed as well. But um, I feel like I have this duty to say this loudly because um, 
because the Pakistani people are absolutely lovely. And I'm certainly not saying that they, again, that everybody should go there on vacation and that there's not a security sit, uh, problem. But um, I, just, I just want a voice to say that's not my experience. And it, uh, in answer to where the Jeep goes, the, the Jeep goes back to Hushe, the village that it came from, and we're on satellite communication with them that it's going to come back uh, when we need it. They'll come pick you up. Hopefully. Hopefully they're going to come back. <laughs> totally. But, you know, the, um, the guys that we have in base camp, um, a guy named Rasul, um, his son, Fida Ali, and his son-in-law, Nadim, uh, are our staff working with us when we're there. And uh, Rasul and Steve have been friends for, I think, 35 years. Uh, he's known Fida since he was a three-year-old boy. It's like, it's like family, you know? It's like, I got super lucky to get plugged into that, but um, you couldn't be, we couldn't be less worried about what's happening at base camp when we're up on the moon. Chris, you had mentioned a couple times that two of your climbing partners were 60-ish, or in their 60s. And how old are you and Graham? Uh, I'm 37, Graham's 34. So talk about a little bit about how, like, because I'm, in full disclosure, I've watched a few podcasts and a few interviews of all of you, so I'm leading this question in. But um, one of the things I thought really that was really fascinating was the way those dynamics worked in a really positive way of, like, the the younger experience and, like, more modern, like, kind of what alpinism is now but also what alpinism, like the experience that comes with having done it for so long. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that sort of worked to your advantage on the mountain? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, um, there's a lot of things that make a great climber. And I think when you, um, when you look at a great alpine climber, the idea that uh, alpinists are generalists, uh, comes to be that much clearer. And that generalism means that, yes, you need to be good at ice climbing. Yes, you need to be good at rock climbing, mountaineering, aid climbing, etc. But it, the, the net it casts is wider. It's like you need to be good at expedition planning. You need to be good with people. You need to be good with logistics. You need to be a good researcher. And when I look at some of the most accomplished alpinists out there, uh, I don't think their secret is that they can do more pull-ups than somebody else. Uh, it's, it's a whole nother skill set. And there's a few people who I think um, really stand out in that regard. And Steve is one of them. Um, he was a, uh, a civil engineer and ran kind of large scale civic engineering projects at, in his professional life. And that shows in the way that he approaches a project like a climbing expedition. And Graham and I have been on a bunch of expeditions, but Steve has literally been going to the, um, the Pakistani Karakoram since, like, I want to say 1987 or something like that. And uh, that builds an, in an incredible base of experience that became so obvious to Graham and I over the course of these last two trips, uh, where the story we end up telling is this one of um, kind of this serendipitous synergy or something. And it sounds made up. It sounds like, oh, you're just saying that because it's a good story, but it's not. It's like 
this expedition really would not have been successful if we didn't have the team that we did and we didn't have that collective experience uh, to draw on that we did. And I, I should be clear, Steve is no slouch physically. I mean, you know, Steve's 65 and you know, when we go to the crag, it's like he's doing routes that most 25 year olds would think were hard and he's grumpy that it took him like two tries to do it. He's insanely fit, but um, you know, Graham and I sort of provided the horsepower on the trip and um, you know, certainly had a lot to contribute in the decision-making, but Steve and Mark just had, I mean, literally collectively probably 50 years of experience in these particular mountains on us. And, um, that was not for nothing. <laughs> and, uh, so in so much of the, um, the nuts and bolts of what makes these things work or fail, those guys are masters at making it work. And, um, and so, yeah, we led most of the, of the pitches, but, um, you know, I think if, if you had a, a younger team or a different team, I'm not sure that they would have been able to, um, approach all of the problems that the weather and conditions and everything and strategy present in the same way that we were able to, because I know like I am a professional risk manager and I, in my work life as a guide sort of thrive on being detached from the outcome. But when it's, um, and it's easy to make decisions that way, but when it's you in this situation where you're emotionally invested, you have more blind spots and Steve's just, and Mark have been around for long enough that their ability to navigate all of the human factors is just incredible. Um, so, uh, yeah, I really, I don't think that either Graham or I are making it up when we say we could not have done it without them. Do they ever make fun of you for being young, you know? Uh, yeah, but it turns out that, you know, I think I had the impression when I was younger that uh, being an adult meant like basically being my dad, who's great, but like had a Volvo and two kids. And um, <laughs> it turns out if Steve and Mark are any indication, being an adult, it doesn't change in the next 30 years, really. You can have kids, you could do whatever, but like, you know, uh, fart jokes and <laughs> juvenile humor is still there. Um, so, yeah. As I get older, I just fart more. So there's more and more <laughs> fart jokes. Thankfully, we're on Zoom and not in the same room with Jason. Um, hey, Chris, I got a question for you. You, I was looking online and you've got a lot of first ascents. And um, some of those like have some interesting names. And I'm wondering if it's not a peak, if it's a route, for example, do you get to name it? Or how does that work? You know, who comes up with some of these names like... Uh, I don't know, Wish You Were Here, or uh, Night Crosses the Crown. Yeah, when, so, yeah, when you, when you do a new route, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, 20 feet long at your local crag or on a mountain, you get to name it. And um, it took me a while to realize, actually, one of the coolest things is when you're the only person who's ever climbed the mountain, because it doesn't need a name to differentiate from the other things on the mountain. It's just, we climbed Linksar. I mean, okay, we call it the Southeast Ridge, but it's like, yeah, we don't have to give it a name. It's just the thing. The other ones um, are all on mountains that have been climbed before. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, putting up climbing routes is 
I mean, it is a creative act, whether it's um, something that you went out and built over the course of days or hours or weeks or whatever with bolts and with pulling the dirt out of cracks and filling out, you know, figuring out the moves or whatever. Um, or in the case of Wish You Were Here, uh, years of trying to go up to a particular thing and then going out by myself one day and um, finding myself successful, or in this case, years of going back to the same part of Pakistan, it feels like you've created something. So being able to name it, I think, feels probably the same as naming any kind of song or movie or Speaking so, of, are you a speaking Pink of Floyd songs, fan? Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to ask the same question. Is that a Pink Floyd reference? Or, uh... <laughs> yeah. It is. It, yeah, that, yeah the, the first route on that bass is called um, Nothing Compares to You. And it was put up by a Swiss team. Um, the, the Prince or Sinead O'Connor version? Well, I don't know. I mean, I haven't talked to the Swiss. Um, <laughs> But I'm guessing Sinead O'Connor, since I didn't think I even knew that Prince wrote it until recently. But um, uh, I had wanted to do that route with a friend who passed away. And so when I actually did it by myself, uh, the, um, the Pink Floyd reference was, was, was there with me all day. That's awesome. So um, in a non-COVID 2020, <laughs> Um, how much of your time is sort of split between, because I know you guide, and, but you also do personal expeditions and a lot of personal climbing. What is sort of a ratio, would you say, or, you know, what percentage is guided work that you do and what percentage is just personal, like, fun? Oof. Um, you know, every year has a, it's a slightly different flow to it, I guess. Um, I think that I, I feel really lucky in that I've been able to... Um, live the story of find what you love and you know try to make it your job versus making something your job ruins your love for it so i i climb and ski as much for fun as i do for work um, i don't actually enjoy guiding uh, expedition type climbs very much um part, partially i think just because being gone for 10 weeks at a time for uh for fun is kind of a big ask of your partner and your work life and your bank account and whatever. So being gone for 10 week spells for work expeditions doesn't really appeal to me as well. Um, but I, I, I don't know the actual answer to the ratio. I mean, I, I spend most of my year being traveling and moving to different places seasonally for work, but I certainly managed to get in plenty of fun climbing and skiing when I'm in those places too. So I, I don't know, maybe it's a good thing. I don't know what the numbers are. I haven't <laughs> had to like agonize over them. So you've mentioned Norway. What is sort of your, what does a typical year look like for you as far as traveling and moving around? Well, this will be the, I think to the spring of 2021 will be the first year in the last six that I won't go to Norway, which actually makes me really sad. I, I got there. Um, I was there for six, seven, eight days or something last year I, or this year. Uh, I basically flew to Norway the week that the world was changing. And I, um, I left thinking, Oh, I don't know if international travel is a great idea. And within days it was like, you need to get out and come home. So things have been totally different this year, but normally I would be in, um, at home in Bend for a chunk of the winter. Uh, I usually do a few weeks, uh, 
a work up in Canada, often climbing with your husband. Um, and then uh, I will go to uh, Norway in the spring to guide skiing and uh, go alpine climbing. Um, summers are often um, spent in the Alps. Um, and then come back to the States at some point. And then every other year interrupt that with uh, a summer expedition. Um, two quick questions on your, on your, now do you do, do you um, guide backcountry skiing, ski mountaineering and where in Norway do you, uh, do you usually go? So the shameless plug, uh, I'm usually up in Lofoten in the North in the Lofoten Islands working for uh, a buddy's business called the Lofoten Ski Lodge. Um, and uh, I actually don't, I don't have to try to sell you on it because I love it to death. It's like one of the most special places in the world because we are ski touring from the water uh, to the summits and skiing back down. So backcountry skiing, some of it's got a ski mountaineering vibe to it, but generally people are there to ski, not to, you know, climb things and put crampons on, though it does have really amazing technical climbing because it's flawless granite on these gorgeous peaks and it's just in an area that is so rich with mountains and so sparsely populated that you could just throw a snowball at a like drool worthy climbing route any day. So I love it. I went there four years ago for photography in the summer and it's, it, man, it is of all the places on the planet, it's, it's up there near the top. It is just such a special, spectacular looking place. I mean, just those mountains just shooting up out of the ocean and oh, it's just such a beautiful place. It's it's on my list. It's on my list of places to go uh, when you know someday when things open back up. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and the Norwegian people are so friendly, and it's it's just another world. Um, I really love it up there. Uh, I will say that um, you know you are up in the Arctic on the water, so it helps to be from the Pacific Northwest to deal with the weather sometimes. But um, but it's still magical. I was there in July, so that wasn't that bad for me. <laughs> it was in the 70s a couple days. Chris, like for a trip like that, what level skier do you need to be? And like what kind of experience would – for somebody to have a good time, right? Like not to have it be a total suffer fest. Um, what kind of level of skier and what kind of backcountry experience would they need? Well, again, it sounds like I'm full of it, but it's actually a really good place for um, kind of introductory level backcountry skiing because – being that you're in the Arctic, there aren't a lot of trees to deal with. Uh, we've got, you know, small, I mean, basically you start out at sea level. Um, uh, the tree line is about three, 400 feet, something like that. Um, so eventually you do have to uh, come back down through some thicker trees at some point at the end of the tours. But um, we, most of the peaks there are no more than, 3,000 feet high. Okay, sorry, 300 meters. So the tree line's 1,200 feet, and you're climbing often to two and a half or 3,000 feet. So it's not high altitude. It's wide open, beautiful, planar alpine slopes. So a good portion of our clients are folks who are um, expert skiers, but just learning to backcountry ski. A portion of them have skied everywhere, and it's almost like Norway's the like the Alaska of Europe, it's like not that far away, but it's something completely different. And then um, a lot of our skiers are folks who are just kind of trying to learn someplace without a lot of 
um, other people without a lot of, uh, well, the Alps are pretty steep for the most part, but also like a lot of people, a lot of infrastructure, blah, blah, blah. The Norwegians are really proud of their nature and the fact that they don't have a lot of infrastructure in the mountains. So um, it's a good place to go out and figure it out. The only place I, it's not good. I wish they would do a little bit more. This is a summer thing with their trails because they have these really beautiful things and they've done zero trail engineering. So you get these like eight foot wide freeways just going straight up the mountain in the mud. And you're like, oh, come on, you know, a little bit of trail engineering would, would, would you know, save these slopes and just make them so much prettier. Um, there's also, I guess, if people wanted to go there, you do have, um, well, uh, like Narvik and Harstad. There's actual big ski resorts where like the Olympics were held not far from, not far from there. What, where, where were you guys based? Where's the lodge and where are you guys based on the, on the archipelago when you, when you go? So we're, uh, we're in, we're near Svalbard or Kabelvag. So on, um, so Northern, right? Kind of on the Northern part there, is it? It's like halfway out and on the southern side of of the the islands but we ski all over the islands we're pretty much right in the middle um when you go west it tends to get a little warmer and wetter so it's not always good over there um but we get a ton of snow we're right by the most iconic peaks on the islands like yaitgalien and the highest stuff um so usually we're not driving i mean some of our drives are five minutes some of them if you want to go exploring are an hour but we're kind of like right in it but to your point about trail work, uh, I kind of thought that they were going to be like an orderly people like the Swiss in Norway, but no, like they are, I think we share a lot of sensibilities because they have so much open space and they really don't like following rules. They really don't like being told what to do. And it makes sense because we're cowboys and they're Vikings. And yeah, and I didn't, I just didn't get that. <laughs> No, although Viking, the Vikings were actually very orderly. They're the ones that a lot of like the city planning and the grid stuff was actually Viking stuff. People don't realize that, but no, totally. It, it is kind of a, um, yeah, I did find that it was a very, I was expecting kind of a more Swiss, more European thing when I was there too. And that definitely wasn't there. Although man, well, they, they'll build a tunnel through anything to get anywhere. That was one, that archipelago, like three kilometer tunnels to get to a little town that has like 10 people living in it. It's just crazy. It is really impressive, but I keep wanting to ask the tunnel builders like, hey, if you guys had the resources to build this tunnel, couldn't you have given me like just an extra meter on the edge of the road? Because in winter with plowing and trucks and it's like, man, those roads are just about as wide as they need to be for you to pass like, you know, a semi who drives in the Arctic winter all the time. But um, I'm not used to it. No, it's kind of funny, too, because, you know, you go to like some of the older countries where it's like wagon roads that they turned into driving roads, you know, like Ireland or, or even lots of parts of England. And, you know, those are old roads there. They just built them and there's nothing there. It's not like you're b between buildings or between anything. It's like you could have made it bigger. Totally. I mean, you're between the fjord and like the mountain, sure, but like an extra three feet on either side is not going to push that too much. <laughs> no, but but I mean, it is a really beautiful place, uh, so you people should go there. <laughs> you should hire him to take you skiing there if you like skiing. <laughs> so, Chris, what's next? Like, what is? I mean, it's such a loaded question. Like, what's the future hold? Who knows? But um, yeah, what's next? What are you looking forward to? What what's kind of keeping you motivated these days? 
Well, I'll probably start another season of the Great British Bake Off soon. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I just finished one this afternoon after my run. So, you know, I don't know if I want to sign myself up for another, like, 10 hours. Um, New season of The Crown on Netflix this week. I actually way. am really excited about that. I'm really yeah. excited. Um, no, uh, I... Graham and I are hoping to go back to Pakistan next summer. Uh, so... Um, honestly, COVID has been the worst in basically every regard, uh, but the one, uh, one silver lining for it has been that I've been home longer than I've been, I think, since I've ever lived in Ben. Um, and that's given me a lot of time to train without a ton of work, uh, in the way. Um, so that part's been great and we're just trying to get ready to, to go back uh, next year. Hopefully by June, the world will, um, will make that sort of thing seem feasible. Um, but it's at least my motivation for uh, getting out and running and, and climbing and all of that stuff right now. But you know, I also have to say living in Bend, it's like, yes, I'm going running and climbing and all that stuff, thinking about mountains in Pakistan, but it's, pretty nice place to have to weather this storm should ask do you have any like any other than i mean obviously your the the, the recent one big one you did but do you have was it linksis i, I don't remember how to links say are. it links are um do you have any other favorite trips you've done or any other favorite places you've gone climbing oh um i mean norway honestly is one of the more special places i've, I've gotten to climb it's like the light up there in winter is so unique and it's so crazy to walk a half an hour from the car to go climb on a face that if you put some of those routes that we're doing for the first time in the Alps and put it a half an hour from the road, it would have 20 parties on it every Saturday. And to just be by yourself with the expanse of fjord and mountain and knowing that no one's done this before, it's so cool. Um, so I love that place. I, I love getting to spend time in the Alps and in Chamonix and, um, you know, such a storied history for big trips. I mean, I've had some great trips to Nepal. I, I love Alaska, um, dearly. Um, you know, I mean, favorite places I want to keep going back to the Karakoram's really pretty high on the list because, there's so many incredible things that haven't been climbed and that range is just set up for, um, for it's set up for people like me to uh, look around and see a lifetime of things to do because it's perfect rock. It's got generally pretty decent weather. Um, it doesn't get a ton of snow. So you're not always scared of avalanches. You get to climb there in the middle of summer uh, instead of in the rest of the Himalaya, you're there in fall or spring to avoid the monsoon. So it's not that cold. It's just got everything going for it. So um, before I went to the Karakoram, I kind of didn't get why, you know, Steve would be uninterested whenever I talk about something in China or wherever. Um, now I get it and I'm hooked too. So I just want to go back. You said that you and Graham are, are planning stuff, but are um, is the is the dream team of four still plotting stuff as well? No, I think that uh, this was um, the last kind of big one for Steve and Mark. And um, I mean, I need to put quotes on that because I know Steve wants to go back. I know he has things he wants to do. And 
Steve's not big trip will probably be whatever, some first ascent of a cool looking 6,000 meter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I think it's a, uh, if everything works out, it'll be myself, Graham, and our friend Ian from Canada, um, who's also done a, a good bit of climbing there. So um, fingers crossed. So, so Chris, uh, let's look forward in, look into the crystal ball, not a year ahead, but like 20 years, 25 years down the road. Are you still going to be uh, chasing these uh, peaks in Pakistan and different places around the world? You know, that's a really good question because um, a few times Graham and I have kind of, you know, whispered to each other, hey, do you think you're going to be doing this when we're 65? And, you know, the answer is universally been like, fuck no. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I see myself wanting to climb and I see myself wanting to ski and be outside and be in the mountains for the rest of my life. And hopefully I'll be lucky enough to do that. Um, I don't see myself wanting to sit in, you know, a dusty base camp in the remote corners of, you know, the middle of nowhere in 20 or 30 years. But um, I, I definitely have a few more I really want to do. After that, hopefully I'll be traveling to climb and ski as long as I can, but probably not in this way. Something a little more like type one fun than, um, you know, type two, less suffering. I bet it's more like type 1.5. Just if, if you're doing this crazy thing, I think type one, you know, would probably not, you know. Yeah, and I would say what you're doing is maybe a little bit beyond type two. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, is I there like a, a type six? Say, you're type like, one, five, type six, they're type two, you know. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. type, type 12 maybe even, I don't know. You won that peel door, peel the door prize. So, I mean, that's gotta be, you know, that's, that's, that's gotta be up there in like types. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'll say this, you know, I, at least for me, the definitions are like, one is actually fun, just straight fun. Two will be fun later. Three is fun now, but we'll regret it uh, later. Type four is just not fun. There are all of those types mixed in, but I think the type one fun is actually um the one and two are strong enough that they like cancel out the rest of it um but there are genuinely you know like genuinely satisfying in the moment bits to this stuff there's just that's like one so just out of curiosity because obviously the peak was obviously a much better being on the peak is much better than winning an award for it but i mean it must be kind of neat to to because that's like a worldwide thing right i mean that to, to get that award must be kind of neat right it is, yeah. Of course, since it's 2020, it was pretty bittersweet to not be able to go to the award ceremony to get the award because that would be half the fun. But I, I mean, I have to admit, it's something that I always had wanted to do, not necessarily because I wanted the award, which turns out they used to give you a golden ice axe. I didn't know they don't actually give you a PLA door anymore, which... Um, That's a bummer. Yeah, I don't think I was as upset about that as my mom was, um, but uh, yeah, it was it was it was cool. Just because it's always a, a jury of um, people that you look up to if you're an alpinist. It's it's always that that kind of peer reviewed thing where it wasn't uh, you didn't win the award because you had the shiniest pitch deck or you know, did the best marketing campaign. It's like, it's actually people who know what they're talking about recognizing 
what you did as being cool. So that feels really good. Are they going to do a redo on the ceremony next year? You know, they, we asked if we could come to the ceremony next year and they said, for sure, we'd love to have you. I think to be honest, we always, we all thought, well, you're not going to have anything to celebrate next year because nobody can really go climbing in the big mountains in 2020. But we have been proven wrong on that, that a few really cool ascents have gone up this year. So I don't know, maybe we'll get to go to the party, but I think that, I think that they will actually have some stuff to talk about next year. Very cool. So um, before we wrap up, cause we want to be, you know, aware of your time and all that kind of good stuff. Um, We'll probably, we don't know when we'll air this, but it'll probably still sort of be winter and bend is my guess, winter-ish and bend. So top three favorite things to do in the winter and bend. Ooh. Well, you know, one of the really sad things is obviously many of the things I would want to say to do, you can't do because of COVID times, because going to the Deschutes Brewery on a Monday uh, when it's locals night, which you don't have to be a local for, but to drink, um, Discounted pints and eat cheeseburgers would be one of my favorites because Deschutes brews some awesome winter beers. Can't do that, but you could still buy yourself a pack of Jubal Ale and maybe make a cheeseburger. I don't know. Um, uh, rock climbing at Smith in the winter is magical because so much of the year we spend thinking it's too hot and you go out on a February day and it's like laying in a hoodie and climbing in a t-shirt and um, it's beautiful and sunny. There's nobody there and the mountains are covered in snow and shiny. That's a big win. Um, and, ooh, I only get one more. I don't know. Uh, you know, I think like it just being out in the mountains, whether you're skiing or you're climbing or whatever here in winter is pretty great. If you come to Oregon, in August and see the sisters when they're kind of bare and sort of dry, you might not really get the magic, but being out there, even if you're just riding the chair at Mount Bachelor on a sparkly winter day, it's pretty gorgeous around here. So I'm gonna go with just being in the mountains, but I would say that. Awesome, very cool. So Chris, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's been great talking to you and hearing all your stories. Um, hopefully our listeners have a better appreciation of sort of what it means to be an alpinist. And um, even though Jason can't pronounce it, you should look up PLA d'Or and we'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that. Um, Peel but- the door is close enough. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, four years of high school French. All right. Peel yeah. the door is fine. Perfect. I we could all spend a week trying to nail it, and the French would still disapprove. So fair yeah, enough. True, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. And I'm probably and I'm probably being all like you know high horsey and like making fun of it and probably not pronouncing it right as well. So, um, anyways, Chris, how do people find you? Um, we will have this information in the show notes as well online. But um, how do people find you if they want to reach out to you for guiding or otherwise? Yeah, so you can find uh, most of what I'm up to uh, on my website at nowclimbing.com, all one word, um, or find me on Instagram at now underscore climbing. And um, uh, if you do want to come join me for some climbing or some skiing, whether it's here or in Norway or the Alps or wherever, um, uh, you know, I'm really, I'm really knocking on wood for these vaccines. So hopefully we'll be able to go places soon. But um, if you're in the Pacific Northwest, you know, it's, uh, you can always come here. So. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. That was a pleasure. 
Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at adventure us women. That's adventure us women, Jeff at the SoCal hiker or me at the Muir project. Our title track almost there is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more on this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. On our next episode, we have teacher and trail runner Ashley Nordell. As always, thanks for listening.